Hey, it's Dr. Jamie, and I want to personally thank the sponsor of today's Fit and Fabulous podcast, Nutola. Nutola was created out of a love for granola, but everything on the market was full of sugar. So the creator of Nutola got creative and made her own. The personal training client started eating it and encouraged her to actually start marketing it. So she did. Nutola is amazing because it only has four net carbs. It has perfect macros for a ketogenic diet, has zero added sugar or sugar alcohols. It's available in monk fruit sweetened and in unsweetened. In the sweetened, there's six ingredients. And in the unsweetened, there's only five ingredients. You guys, you know I always give you the hookup. So use code DRFITANDFABULOUS. That's D-R-F-I-T-A-N-D-F-A-B-U-L-O-U-S for 15% off at www.visionaryfoods.net. That's Dr. Fit and Fabulous for 15% off www.visionaryfoods.net. Go check it out. to the Fit and Fabulous podcast with Dr. Jamie Seaman. Hello, everybody. It's Dr. Jamie, and welcome back to the Fit and Fabulous podcast. I'm so glad that you're here with us today listening. We have an amazing guest, and we're going to talk about some really, really cool topics that I know will interest you. The best thing you can do to help us out is to make sure you download the episode, you leave us your reviews, whether you're on YouTube or on Apple Podcasts. Those types of things really help us get this message out to more people. So thank you for everybody that's done that. And uh, if you can share this episode, we'd appreciate it so much. I want to welcome my guest today, Dr. David Minkoff. Welcome to the Fit and Fabulous podcast. Thank you, Dr. Jamie. It's great to to be with you. We were just discussing before we got on here, uh, Dr. Minkoff's in Clearwater, Florida. I'm in Omaha, Nebraska, and it's a lot colder here than it is in Florida. So I'm I'm going to pretend like there's heat uh, radiating through <laughs> through this video and, uh, and microphone. But you guys, let me introduce you to my guest. Dr. David Minkoff is the leading physician. He's got more than 40 years experience um, in medicine. He's a best-selling author. He's an athlete, and he is a devoted family man. He founded the LifeWorks Wellness Center in 1997, and it's now one of the largest alternative medicine clinics in the U.S., and Body Health in 2000, a nutrition company that offers a unique range of dietary supplements for the public and practitioners. Dr. Minkoff has a diverse background as a board-certified pediatrician, a fellow in infectious disease, an ER physician, and a co-director of neonatal intensive care unit. He's an expert in things like hormone replacement therapy, functional medicine, chelation, allergy elimination, European biological medicine, neural therapy, prolotherapy, ozone therapy, longevity, anti-aging medicine, insulin potentiated therapy, and so much more. We have so many topics that we want to talk about today, but he's super passionate, passionate about fitness. And he's 71. For those of you on YouTube, you can see him. He looks darn good for his age, but he completed his 43rd full Ironman triathlon. He qualified for the Kona world championships eight times. That is no joke, you guys. And when he's not training, he's devoting his time to his wife of 50 years. There are three children, eight grandchildren, he also does writing. He does research. He's published a best-selling book called The Search for the Perfect Protein. He's writing a second book. He writes online newsletters every week, the Optimum Health Report and Body Health Fitness Newsletter. Dr. Minkoff, that is quite the bio. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So we, I have to talk about all these Ironmans. I've never done one myself. I've run two half marathons. After my second daughter was born, I thought running was going to get all my, my postpartum weight off. So that's that's all I can attest to, but tell us how you ever got into, to being a triathlete and how you accomplished that amount of success. Sure. Um, when I was in my first year of medical school, my dad, uh, who was 50 years old, had a massive heart attack. Um, I remember visiting him in the ICU. I was really scared. Um, he had been a college athlete. And he, but he had not taken care of himself. He ended up being a business guy, three pack a day smoker. Um, And here he is in the ICU looking terrible. And it sort of shocked me. And I played regular type sports. Uh, I ran track in high school. Um, And I don't know, it just changed something in me. And I decided I I just had to become fit. And I started running. Um, In 1974, I 
went from Madison, Wisconsin, which is where I was, um, where I grew up and went to medical school to San Diego, UC San Diego. And we, um, and Frank Shorter had just done either silver or gold medal in the Olympics. And there was a running boom going on in San Diego and I got interested in it. And I ran a bunch of 10Ks and I ran five different marathons. And then in 1982, I was sitting on the couch with my best friend and we were watching a show that no longer exists, but it was called Wide World of Sports. And it was a fun show and they would show sports from all around the world. And on that February day in 1982, they showed this race called an Ironman triathlon. It was over in, in Hawaii. And uh, the, the origin of it was that three, uh, about six or seven Navy SEALs were sitting around a table one night after too much beer. And they were arguing over who was the best athlete, was a swimmer, biker, or runner. And they decided that they would see and the way they would do it is that every year in Hawaii, there was a Waikiki rough water swim. It was 2.4 miles. There also in Honolulu was the, um, the Oahu bike race, which was around the island of Oahu. It was 112 miles. And there was another event that went on in Hawaii, which is the Honolulu Marathon, so 26.2 miles. And they said, we're gonna do it all in one day. And each of us comes from a different background. Uh, we're Navy SEALs and we're going to see who wins. And they did that race and it was just them. And it wasn't really an organized thing. They had their family and friends helping them with food along the way. Um, but then the next year they decided to come back and they invited a few more friends. And by uh, a few years later, it actually became an event. And in 1982, Wide World of Sports was there and they filmed this race and we were watching it on TV. It's full and circle. two girls, huh? That's full circle. Full circle. So two women from San Diego, which is where I was living, were winning the race. And the one that was leading about a hundred years before a hundred yards before the finish line was exhausted and she fell over and she tried to stand up and she couldn't. And the second place woman was not that far behind her. And the crowd is there and they're cheering her get up because you can't really help people. Right. Uh, you know, if you help them, they're out of the race. Um, and there wasn't any money in this thing. These guys were just doing it for fun. Right. And um, as she tried to get up and sort of fell toward the finish line, the second place woman came right by her and won the race. And I'm sitting there with my buddy and we look at each other and we say, we got to do this race. So he said, yeah, great idea. He said, uh, I had just gone into practice. And he had a financial services business. And he said to me, hey, you give me all your extra money and I'll invest it. And in five years, we'll both be rich and then we'll train and we'll do this race. <laughs> we shook hands on it. And I went to bed that night thinking, I'm excited about this. And I woke up in the middle of the night and I was like, I can't, I can't wait for five years. I have to do this now. Besides, the last guy I gave money to lost all of it. And I, I can't go with that. So in the morning, I woke up and I looked in the newspaper and I found a used bicycle for a couple hundred bucks and I went over there and bought it. And I had been a lifeguard. My summer job was a lifeguard. I was a good swimmer. So I joined the YMCA, which wasn't too far from our house. And I was running already. So that was fine. And that was uh, that was uh, in February of 82. And in October, I was on the starting line at the Hawaii Ironman Triathlon in Kona, Hawaii. And that was my first Ironman. Wow. And it was painful and it was terrible. And I remember thinking in the last part of the marathon, like I'm never doing this again. And I went over there with a friend who trained with me and he, he came in a few minutes after me and he was like angry at me that I'd ever talked him into doing it. <laughs> uh, and so we need company. <laughs> right. So we get on the plane to come home and there's about 40 guys and gals that had done the race that were on the plane and we're flying back from Honolulu to San Diego. And we're all talking and commiserating about the race. But by the end of the six hour flight, I had decided that I could not let this thing beat me. And I was going to be back there next year and I was going to do it again. And so I did. 
now 43 Ironmans later. Um, I'm still hooked and it's still fun. And I've done hundreds of other triathlons in the, in the process because there's all kinds of short races around here and other things. And it's just fit into my lifestyle. I'm into health. I'm into fitness. I work with people all day long, some of whom are sort of elite level fitness people. But most, honestly, most of my practice is people with chronic illness. They have cancer and Lyme disease and Parkinson's and autoimmune disease. And I think they like it if their doctor looks like he's doing what I'm telling them to do. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a big thing for people to see. You can have a busy life. You can eat the right things. You can keep your fitness up. And in the bio, it's 71. So that's an old one. I'm 73. Um, (laughs) We didn't give you all the credit. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, um, that's how it all started. And my wife, so when I came home the first time after the first race, um, we had three young children. And I was working every third night in the hospital with call. Um, and I, at the time I was a pediatrician. So we were every third night, we were in the delivery room for babies that were in trouble. We covered the emergency room. And then we had a ward that had probably 15 or 20 patients on it. And so I just slept in the hospital. So I wasn't, I was gone a lot and I was training for Ironman early in the morning. And when I got home, my wife said, uh, you're never doing this again. So <laughs> So I said, okay, but I started training anyway, I kept training. And then about in uh, probably April, I said, you know, we ought to take a vacation to Hawaii in October. And she was all for that. And so I scheduled it, which was around the time of the race. And I entered the race and I went there. And when we got there, I said, hey, you know, on Saturday is going to be the Ironman. And I haven't really talked to you about this, but I'm, I've trained for it and I've, I, you know, I'm going to do the race. Now, for anyone who's been in Kona on Ironman week, it's like the most electric thing you'd ever been to. You know, it's bigger. I think it's better than a Super Bowl because there's a lot, you know, there's a couple thousand athletes there and their families. And, and it's really, um, it's, it's really an amazing experience. And so she was a runner, she was an athlete. And when she got there, she could feel it. And she said, you know, I didn't understand this, but I understand it now. And I want to be a triathlete too. And so I did the race and the family held together. And, um, and when we came home, she started training and she's done hundreds of triathlons. She's a podium athlete. You know, she, wow. she usually wins her age group or is close. She doesn't like real long distances, but sprints and Olympic distances, she's, she's very good. And so I've got a partner in this now and it's been, it's, it's made it all great. I loved what you said about your patients want to see that you're doing the things that you tell them to do. Cause that yeah. I'm much younger than you, but I, that is one thing that I really take pride in is I felt like I got to a place in my career where I had to walk the walk <clears throat> instead of talking the talk because a lot of our colleagues are not healthy. They're not doing the things that they ask their patients to do. You know, the Western medical system is not really getting people better. I mean, they're living longer, but they're living miserable lives with lots of doctor's visits and expensive medications and treatments and things like that. And so I really applaud you for, for, for living that way. Did your kids end up getting into uh, competing as well? They did. And they're all very, you know, they're all very much into nutrition and lifestyle and a- athletics and they're all really good. So it, it really carried down and they, you know, they got the message, which is part of what I wanted to do anyway. So yeah, um, yeah, it's been great. And, and my, and you know, my brothers and sisters never got into it. My brother was actually a college athlete, um, but you know, he's had two bypasses and he's got diabetes and hypertension. And he's on seven, prescription medicines mm-hmm. and he's a great guy but they they just never could adopt the lifestyle to stay healthy same with my sister diabetes hypertension obesity my other brother same thing so one of the things i really like to tell people is that it, it is not a, your genes you know it isn't your genes i have done my genetic testing with three different labs hoping to get better results uh because i don't have good genes um but you can outdo your genes by living right. 
And if you don't want to end up really sort of medical wreckage, which is what happens to most people, that, you know, once you start to go down that medical paradigm, you are, you are not going to rescue yourself unless something drastic changes. So if you can stay out of that, you, you know, this is a, sort of a little known thing, but if you look in the statistics of what kills people. So if you want to live old, you have to not die of the things that kill people, right? Yeah. So 650,000 people a year die of heart disease. Okay. So you don't want to have heart disease because that kills more people than anything else. And you don't want to get cancer because about 600,000 people a year die of cancer. So avoid cancer and then avoid diabetes and avoid Alzheimer's and these sorts of things. But that is the list that's generally published for people who, you know, of the list of things that kill people. But there's actually a number one cause of killing people. And that is doctor iatrogenic illness. Okay. Doctors prescribing medicines that aren't the right fit for the person or they're toxic or operations that shouldn't be done or post-op wound infections or wrong meds given to the wrong person or, you know, bed sores be and people becoming toxic. It's doctor-related illness. And it kills more people per year than any than heart disease or cancer. So I think when people go to doctors, they have to understand that they are taking a big risk and that there are many solutions to the common problems that people have, obesity, diabetes, and metabolic syndrome, and cholesterol, and, and all these things, that there are actual real solutions and even if your own genes aren't very good, like mine aren't, you can fix it by living the right way and consulting with people. Like, like someone coming to see you is going to get a very different set of data and information and what to do, or if they come to see me, than if they go to their local GP or cardiologist or diabetic specialist. Because yeah. I know that all these conditions can be reversed. And if you know how to do it, you can help somebody else do it. And we have thousands and thousands of people now that are just like, they're not in the, on the, they're not living on the medical paradigm. And so I'm not saying that if you're having a heart attack, you shouldn't go to the hospital or if you need a C-section that you don't get your C-section. I'm not saying that at all mm -hmm. because medicine has its plus points and it can be very good if you need it. But most people are seeing doctors not for that. They're seeing doctors because they haven't gotten control of their diet and their lifestyle. And they're thinking that the doctor is going to help them or save them. And if they understood that the doctor really isn't going to be able to do that because he's not thinking that way, he's thinking pills and uh, pills never made anybody help. Absolutely. That's fascinating insight. That's fascinating insight. I know that's going to resonate with a lot of people. Um, so talk to me a little bit about your diet. Like, how do you eat? Uh, have you eaten the same way throughout the years of your training, being a triathlete? Has it, has it evolved in any way? Yeah. I mean, I've done everything. I've done everything. When I was 13, I was a boy scout and I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, which is the headquarters for Oscar Meyer meatpacking company. Mm -hmm. Okay. Not good meat. And I, they took us on a tour of all things. They took us on a tour of the meatpacking company as part of a boy scout outing. And we saw the animals getting slaughtered. And I was like, whoa, this is like dreadful. This is like horrible. And I decided at that age that I was gonna become a vegetarian because I didn't like the destructive thing that looked to me like was going on. And so for about 40 years, I was a vegetarian. And um, much to my mother's chagrin, you know, she would take me to the doctor like every six months to get blood tests because you were certain that I was gonna get sick. Um, and I did that. And then I was at an ACAM meeting, American College for Advancement in Medicine. It's a group that trains doctors in chelation therapy and things like this. And I went to the meeting and Lauren Cordain was there. Lauren's a professor of exercise science at Colorado State University. And he'd written a book uh, called The Paleo Diet. And when I heard his story about like what genetically, how did we evolve? What did our ancestors eat? And what has been the trend of foods through the 2 million years of human existence on planet earth, it just made sense to me. And I started to, I switched over and I started eating kind of a paleo diet. 
So it's meat, fish, eggs, fruits, vegetables, nuts, and seeds. I avoid grains, avoided uh, legume products, avoided dairy products. And, and I felt better. Um, and so with that, then I've started to, what I found with my own health is that my genetic tendency toward diabetes, which is all my family had, my blood sugar started to climb. And I found that I had, my body did not handle well sweet fruits and other carbohydrates. And so I am mostly keto now. I wear a continuous glucose monitor. Mm -hmm. I watch what I eat. Um, anything that raises my blood sugar over 130, I try to keep my blood sugar on average below 95. So 24 hour average and on the, on the meter, you can, you can test it. And so I'm really careful with it. Occasionally I'll go off, but I'll, but I'll, I I'm really careful with it. I try to keep my, my blood sugar below 95 as an average. That's a hemoglobin A1C of low fives. And that translates to avoiding diabetes and heart disease and cancer and all these things. Um, and so that's mostly what, that's mostly what I'm doing now. And it works for me and I, um, there's plenty of good stuff to eat. Um, and I'm very keto adapted. I can run for three hours with just some water and electrolytes and I don't feel any hunger and I don't have any sagging energy. And I can, you know, I, it's, it's, like my body's fine. I can, I have enough glycogen and enough fat so that my body can produce energy at any given time. And I, my blood sugar can, I just tested it and I think it was. Yeah. I love continuous glucose monitors. I've worn them myself off and on. And uh, I think it's such a valuable thing for patients to wear because it's been really eye opening. I've had patients who, you know, even if they're fasted insulin and glucose levels look good. They'll put on a CGM and they'll realize that they're still having either hyperglycemia or hypoglycemic episodes. And they can start to correlate them with, Oh, I thought I had anxiety, but it was actually when my blood sugar was dropping or, you know, a whole slew of different symptoms. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny. Cause if I, you know, and my body's very sensitive to it. If I went home now, I just did my blood sugar and it was like 79 and I'm completely fine on 79. Uh, but if I would go home and eat a mango right now, my blood sugar would probably go to 170. You know, like my, my body's very sensitive to it. And if I ate a handful of macadamia nuts or I went home and had a big salad and some steak or some shrimp or something like that, my blood sugar would, you know, maybe go up 10, 15 points and it would go right back down. So, um, so I think it's very important. When you do these longer races, though, do you do any car? Do you do any targeted carbs at all? I actually do better. We, I have this company called Body Health and we make, we make some nutrition bars and they're very tasty. They're really good. Um, they have about six grams of carbs in them and I can eat those and they don't raise my blood sugar. So in one of those races, I might have a bar every couple hours. Okay. Um, I'll drink electrolytes with some amino acids in it and I'm just absolutely fine. Yeah, I know uh, Zach Bitter, who I haven't had him on the podcast yet, but he set the 100-mile marathon record, I think, two years in a row. And um, I believe he uses somewhere like 10 carbs every couple hours, which would be really similar to kind of the strategy you're using. But when you are completely adapted to using those fatty acids, that, yeah, that, yeah it would be very different for somebody that's not, you know, fat-adapted or, or ketogenic-adapted. Right. Um I'm interested to hear your perspective. There's some people that think that humans really shouldn't be in a state of ketosis all the time, you know, that they should only do it for periods of time or come in and out. Do you have thoughts on that? I mean, what are, what's been your experience? I think that people, you know, the sort of Dave Asprey thing, one day a week, eat some starches that um, I probably get it because sometimes I'll have some fruit and it'll take my sugar up a little bit. Um, I watch my thyroid function because sometimes if you're, I, I don't walk around with ketones on my breath. I think my body is, I'm not in a deep state of ketosis. I used to measure it. I had a breathalyzer and I was measuring it all the time. 
and I just haven't been doing it lately. But my wife tells me if I'm spell if I'm smelling keto, you know, like I'm like I'm in ketosis, and she hasn't said anything. Or my grandchildren will they'll come up to me and like, oh God, your breath stinks, and it's it's the fruity smell of ketones. But I I they, it doesn't seem to happen to me now. So I think I'm in a mild ketosis state, but not a lot. I'm more focused on keeping my blood sugar under a very good control. And um, I don't know how many carbs I'm eating a day, not a whole lot. Um, so I'm not, I don't really concern myself with it. If I, if I prescribe it to patients, like our cancer patients, we keep them in deep ketosis because the, you know, most of them have, you know, the cancers like sugar uh, and we keep them that way. And the other people, I just tell them, I give them the, the, the glucose monitor and I say, keep your sugar in these ranges and you can kind of eat whatever you want if you keep them in those ranges. And I steer them yeah. toward, you know, do paleo and stay away from things. Um, and usually that works out and they, um, and then I don't sort of micromanage it with them. Yeah. In the cancer patients that you treat, does there seem to be certain cancers that are responsive to ketogenic therapy and others that aren't? Yes. And almost everybody, we, we do a PET scan on them. So PET scan is basically how much glucose is the tumor taking up. And if it's a very high, fast metabolizing tumor, on the PET scan, it goes from, from probably one to 35 or 40. So if a, if a tumor is taking up 35 or 40 times the, the glucose of the healthy cells, uh, the higher the, the, it's called SUV, it's sort of the sugar uptake value of the tumor, um, on a PET scan, the contrast is a sugar molecule. It's got a label on it. Um, so if they're anything probably above a five or six, I put them on ketogenic diets. Some of the smoldering low-grade tumors, the low-grade prostate cancers, or some of the low-grade colon cancers, if, the, if, if they're not really fast metabolizing, then those tumors are eating fatty acids and they're eating glutamine and glycine. And I'll let them, I'll be more liberal with them because it doesn't seem to make that much difference. Fascinating. Do you, um, do you have any awesome stories to share with us? A cancer patient that comes to mind. It's, it's such a, I love following. There's a lot of new research with using ketogenic therapies, especially for ovarian and endometrial cancers, which is the world I play in, um, fasting prior to chemo radiation, mitigation of side effects, better tumor response. Are you using ketogenic therapy as an adjunct for these patients or as primary therapy? Oh, no, no, it's an adjunct because yeah. we're doing, yeah. you know, we're doing a lot of things. I just things. want people to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I, I think the, the, the sort of general approach of oncology towards cancer is, is not very successful. Like the, mm -hmm. the cure rate on people. I mean, if they have stage one disease and surgery cures it, great. But most of the people I'm seeing are stage three, four disease. These are people who either never went to therapy and they have global disease or they're people who have been through the routine therapy and it worked for a while on them and then it didn't work and they got to do something else because more of the same isn't going to help them. So we're trying to maximize every aspect we can. There's a laboratory uh, over in Greece, which can, which can, we can send their blood and they can isolate the circulating tumor stem cells that are in that person's blood. And they can do sensitivity studies on those cells to see what kills them. And they do about 60 regular chemo drugs, about 30 or 40 immune drugs, the new, the new things, and then about 50 or 60 natural things. So they'll test vitamin C and ginger and turmeric, and they'll actually incubate these cells with these substances and see what kills them the best. And so we get a profile back and we do low dose, it's called insulin potentiation therapy. These people are fasted, they get insulin, we push their blood sugars low, 35, 40, then they're given a very low dose of three chemo drugs that are sense, that have shown sensitivity on the test. Um, we only use about a 10% of what the oncologist would give. So they don't get immune suppression. Their hair doesn't fall out. They don't feel terrible. They don't get muscle ulcers. But you add these three things in with IV vitamin C, IV curcumin, IV ozone, IV methylene blue, hyperbaric oxygen, ozone sauna, you can, you know, hyperthermia, local hyperthermia, depending on where their tumor is. And we get massively great results with it, you know, and we don't kill the people. 
And they actually, over an eight week period that we treat them, they start to feel better and they gain weight. And, you know, it isn't hundred percent by any chance because these are seriously complicated patients, but we have a really good success rate with it. And the quality of life goes way up mm -hmm. and they live longer. And so it's, it's really interesting. And it's, it's, it's really fun because a lot of these people have no hope. And they come into a place like this where they see people. And I've seen the craziest things. I just rechecked her. She's a, she, a mesothelioma is like a failed. There's nobody doing regular oncology that does any good with mesothelioma. It's a tumor generated by asbestos. It can be lung. This person came in with mesothelioma of her stomach, which is like rarer than heck. And she had been to the local cancer, you know, Moffitt, it's a great big cancer. It's probably one of the biggest cancer centers in the Southeast. It's in Tampa, associated with the University of South Florida. And she had been on traditional therapy. And she, when she rolled in here in a wheelchair, her legs were, you know, her, her ankles were bigger than her thighs. She looked just like terrible. And when I was talking to her, she just said, I don't, you know, I don't want to die. And they're done with me. Can you help me? And I said, well, we can sure try. And in four months, she had a negative PET scan. Her ankles were back skinny. And I just saw her at a six month visit and she's running six miles a day and she looks amazing. Wow. In fact, when she walked in, I didn't even recognize her. So we have these success stories. It's not everyone, mm -hmm. but we actually can turn people around a lot of times. And it's because we're, you know, it's basically a non-toxic therapy that's trying to work with their immune system and build them up. That's incredible. That's incredible. Um, talk to us about your book, The Search for the Perfect Protein. So along the way, I was training for an Ironman and I tore my hamstring. And I tried everything I could think of to heal it. And I massaged it and chiropractored it and injected it and physical therapy did, and I did everything. I did everything. I have access to everything. And if I don't have it, I got friends that have, and it wouldn't heal. And so it would feel better. And I would go out for a run and I would start to push it a little bit and I'd feel the pain. And it's like, I'm going to walk because I'm just going to tear it again. So I wasn't getting anywhere. And I started to experiment with essential amino acids. So the body is, our bodies are made out of protein. The basic structure is protein. And proteins are made out of smaller units called amino acids. And if you think like of an alphabet, so in the English language, there's 26 letters and you can make hundreds of thousands of words if you put them together in different sequences. And proteins are same. You have a basic alphabet, there's 22 amino acids. And if you put them together in different sequences, you get proteins. Now, some proteins are real short, like thyroid hormone is a single amino acid, tyrosine with some iodines on it. So that would be the simplest one. But growth hormone, I think, has 89 amino acids and insulin has 150 amino acids. And skeletal muscle has like 5,600 amino acids in one muscle fiber, one actin muscle fiber. So these things can get very complicated, but the basic building blocks are these amino acids. And so eight of these amino acids are in every protein. A protein is considered 30, 30 amino acids or longer. So in every protein, these eight are always there and they're always needed. So the little factory inside the cell, if it says I'm gonna make insulin or fibrin or you know, some other protein, an immune protein, a cytokine. The little template says, so there's like a little instruction sheet. And in the ribosome, which is where the proteins get assembled, it says, I need number one amino acid. And it puts it there. And these are like beads on a string. So, okay, I need, I need a number four for the next position. So it puts number four on the beaded string. And then it said, well, I need a number three. And the cell's like, oh, we're out of threes right now. We don't have any of these. And then that protein stops, it doesn't get made. And there might be 500 amino acids in that string, but on the third one, 
that amino acid isn't present in that cell. Now you got a hundred trillion cells in your body that are doing this 24 hours a day. So there is a constant need for this stuff. And what we found or what I found in myself was I was missing essential amino acids. The diet that I was eating with my intestine, which like most people's intestine, not enough stomach acid, not enough digestive enzyme, too much overgrowth of bad bacteria or parasites or yeasts. And what I was eating wasn't getting translated to the cell level of enough amino acids to make all the proteins in my body. And my weakness was my hamstring and it wouldn't get fixed. So I got a mixture of the eight essential amino acids and I started taking high doses of it. And my hamstring healed in about six weeks. And I went two months later, I did Ironman Canada and I had my best time ever. And I was just elated. Now, the other thing that happened is I actually gained lean body mass quite a bit and I didn't look any different. Mm -hmm. And I started talking to some guys who were smart in this area and they said, you were protein malnourished. As a vegetarian, you were protein yeah. malnourished and your bones were too thin and your muscles weren't thick enough and your connective tissue wasn't good enough. And what happened is when you started to take these extra amino acids, you filled in all this structure, which was actually weakened. And that's why you don't look any different, but you weigh eight pounds or 10 pounds more. But now your body has got all the stuff that it needs. Now, this was super interesting to me. And I remembered earlier, I had had a patient who was, um, there was a, there was a crazy orthodontist named William Donald Kelly, and he got pancreatic cancer. He lived in New York. He was an orthodontist. He got pancreatic cancer. He hated doctors, and he decided that he was going to cure himself because the results for treatment for pancreatic cancer was so bad. Yeah, it's bad he, cancer. Bad cancer. So he put together a mixture of very concentrated pancreatic enzymes from pigs like super high concentration. And he started taking these. And there's a theory that if you can put enough of these enzymes in your system and the enzymes go to the rest of the body, they're absorbed whole through the rest of the body, that the protective coat that the cancer cells keep on themselves so our immune system doesn't recognize them, that you could digest off the coat with these proteins, expose these cancer antigens your immune system would see him and then it would kill him and you'd be cured. And he cured himself from pancreatic cancer. So then he started to consult with people and he had about, I think 10,000 cases that he consulted on and wrote up pre-MRIs or pre-CAT scans, do these enzymes, blah, 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 that got better, okay? And so she was a coach working, so he passed on, but um, the, she, before he died, he trained this lady who was a patient of mine how to do this. And so she's in the clinic one day getting some treatments and I'm talking to her about these pancreatic enzymes. And she said, you know, you should try these yourself, like do three days of it. And if you have a pre-cancer or a brewing cancer, you will nip it in the bud and you will protect yourself. So I thought, what the heck, that sounds like a good idea. So she said, well, you, you take 12 of these enzymes on an empty stomach when you wake up and 12 with breakfast, and then 12 before lunch. And so you take six times 12, 72 of these enzymes <laughs> throughout the day. And she said, if you have a brewing cancer or something, you'll feel it, you'll get sick, you'll get chills, there'll be a die off. And then in three days, you'll be okay. So I take these 12 on an empty stomach. I'm still a vegetarian. I haven't found out the amino acids yet, okay? And by 10 o'clock in the morning, I feel like I've, I've got, like I burned a hole in my stomach. God, like these enzymes are really strong and they, I was like really sick and I started taking sodium bicarbonate and other stuff to try to cool off my stomach. And I went to her and I said, her name's Pamela. I said, Pamela, I don't know. I don't think I have cancer, but boy, I can't take these things. And it always bothered me that I, I couldn't do it. So after I do this whole thing with the amino acids and my hamstring heals and I'm, I'm feeling good and my, my, my maximum heart rate went up 12 points 
like my body function really improved by improving these amino acids. I thought maybe my stomach was missing something because I was lacking amino acids. And I'm gonna do the experiment again with these digestive enzymes, with these pancreatic enzymes. So I took 12 enzymes six times a day for three days. I had not one thing happen. So that was very interesting to me that like there was missing things that if my body wasn't stressed, I didn't know about, but the stress of these enzymes the weakness in my stomach or the mucus lining in my stomach, it wasn't there. And it, and it, you know, it gave me a problem. And so I started doing amino acid blood levels on everybody that came in. And I found all vegetarians were very low. And most people eating a standard American diet, virtually all of them are low. And unless people were taking digestive enzymes and hydrochloric acid, and they were paying attention to their gut function, they weren't absorbing the amino acids, even if they were eating them. And then if we added these into people, they, we, they would start telling me, you know, my chronic plantar fasciitis got better. And we were working with some of the Tour de France pro cyclists. And we worked with the Nike, um, the Olympic uh, track team. It was, it was a Nike sponsored team. But one of, the, one of the chiropractors for the team, he, you know, he said, let's try these in these guys. And we won gold. You know, we, these guys were winning gold medals with these you know, with adding the amino acids. So I wrote a book on it called The Search for the Perfect Protein. It's a story of this. If anybody wants to read it, you can get it on Amazon. Or if you go to bodyhealth.com, you can download a copy and read it. It's a bestseller. It's really, it's really good. And um, add meat back in. (laughs) uh, Add meat back in and add amino acids back in because they really, um, they really do make a difference. And if you're an athlete and you're training, I can almost guarantee you the guys that are beating you are taking perfect amino. That's the name of the product because their recovery is faster and their muscle building is better and their endurance is better. Is Um, it just EAAs? It's just essential amino acids? It's eight essential amino acids. And what turns out is if you measure how well the amino acids are assimilated into the body, there is an exact ratio of each to each other. And so the problem with say whey protein or soy protein or collagen is that the balance isn't quite right and most of it gets wasted. It isn't really what the human needs. And so, you know, the best blend is breast milk, of course, and about 49% of the protein in breast milk is used, is utilized by the baby. Um, The next best food is whole chicken egg. So yolk plus white. Um, and then beef's about 33. The, the plant proteins are very low, but perfect amino is 99% utilized to build protein. So it's way better than any food. And I, I don't tell people to live on it. They should just use that as a, as a supplementation to their already good use of, of, whole, of whole proteins, of natural proteins. Yeah, I eat a ton of red meat and eggs. But one of my concerns, and I'm fascinated by your perspective because you lived for so long as a vegetarian, um, is the, this plant-based movement. I'm just like, we're hearing more and more about it in medicine, like eat plant-based. I have patients that come to me. I saw my cardiologist and my cholesterol is high. They told me to start eating a plant-based diet. Can you dispel some of the myths with meat and eggs and, and those types of things as far as health and longevity? Yeah. I mean, the, uh, if you look at people who live old and you correlate it with cholesterol levels. So usually these cardiologists or these people are talking about this are talking about the effect of diet on cholesterol. And the, so the people who live the longest, the average cholesterol or the best cholesterol levels are between 220 and 240. If you suppress cholesterol, in fact, I saw somebody today, is his first visit. He comes in here on a statin. His cholesterol level is 98. His total cholesterol level is 98 and his cardiologist could not be happier. His serum testosterone was like 170. Wow. Okay. That's low. For people listening, that's low. (laughs) It's really (laughs) low. Anything below 500 is too low. Now, he's not an old guy. He's 45 years old. And he feels terrible because he has a terrible testosterone level. His cholesterol is suppressed way too low. 
we know that the, the all-cause mortality, so this is cause of death from anything. When you go below 200 on a cholesterol, your all-cause mortality doubles. It's not healthy. It's not good for you. It leads you to more, more often getting Alzheimer's, diabetes, um, muscle wasting, low testosterone. It's not a good thing. And it's an idiocy that's, that's within the cardiology community. And this whole thing with, you know, half the people who die of heart disease have normal cholesterol when they're diagnosed. It is not the reason. There's a great sort of analogy to this, which is if we were pretending we were Martians and we flew our flying saucers over earth and we started to observe things and we made an observation that whenever we saw a car accident, we saw a police car. And we went home to Mars and we said, you know, police cars cause accidents. No, they show up at accidents. So cholesterol shows up when there's inflammation inside blood vessels. Yeah, but the cholesterol isn't the cause of the inflammation and reducing the cholesterol doesn't make the inflammation go down. So there are causes of inflammation. Number one being dental, root canals, deep pocket gum disease, that's the number one cause. And then people who eat bad fats and people who overuse, overeat carbohydrates and have high insulin levels and high diabetes, these are high homocysteine. These are all real causes for heart disease. And, and in most people, they're modifiable and you can leave the cholesterol alone. And plant-based diets, 100% of people, and I've measured this for years, their amino acid levels are low, their hormone levels are low. And there is a few, there are a few people who have a gut biome that is more similar to a cow. So a cow can eat grass, has the correct bacteria in their intestine to manufacture essential amino acids, and you can turn out a 2,000 pound steer. Most of us don't have that. And by eating plant-based, we're not getting the essential amino acids and the serum amino acids are low and they protein waste and they're not in optimum health. And yes, the positive thing is they're eating greens and they're eating vegetables and they get fiber and those are all positives, but the protein aspect of it, they're missing. So I eat a ton of vegetables and I have a high fiber diet and I have a very high plant diet, but I also eat meat, fish and eggs as my protein sources so that I'm getting that part too and the essential fats that are needed. And then my body can get the best of both worlds. Some people feel better when they start a plant-based diet because they're actually getting you know, carotenoids and greens and antioxidants that they never had before and fiber that they never had before. And for a while they feel better and that's legitimate. But as a long-term strategy, it's not good and it's not healthy. So I, I try to dissuade people from doing it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think that sometimes people that go quote unquote plant-based or transition to vegetarian and feel good for a short amount of time, it's really the elimination of the flour, the sugar, the vegetable oils and processed foods from the diet. You know, I think everybody would agree that if you're eating whole foods, you're probably doing, you know, quite well, but I'm, I'm with you. You need the uh, essential amino acids. What are your thoughts about people who feel that plants have certain toxins, plant toxicity? Uh, is, do you think that's bio-individual? Do you think as a human species, you know, we all have some sort of susceptibility to that? I, and I think, I think it's some people. So when I take on new people, if they don't need a ketogenic diet, because you know the ketogenic diet I steer, the cancer patients, people with serious neurological disease, I steer them, I try to get them on a keto diet right away. The rest of the people I say do paleo. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of a paleo where there's, there's no grains, no dairy, except dairy fats they can have. They can have heavy cream and they can have butter or ghee, but um, no grains, no legumes and no nightshade vegetables. Because some people with tomatoes and eggplants and yeah. peppers they will, they, they're already inflamed and it makes their inflammation better. And so I say, okay, for the first three months, I'm just going to take you off this stuff. Okay. And then you, your body calms down with what we're doing. It calms down. Your joints don't hurt anymore and your muscles don't hurt and your fibromyalgia went away and your brain turned back on. And now you're alert and now you have energy. 
And then I'll say, well, you can try some tomatoes and see how they go with you or try some eggplant or try some peppers. They're not bad foods for everybody. And some people will add that back in and it's like, oh, geez, my finger swelled up. Okay, well, that's not a good food for you right now. So I try to individualize it and that usually works. So that's kind of my, how I do it. Love that, love that. Um, talk to us about heavy metal toxicity. Who should be looking out for signs, symptoms? Who should get tested for something like that? So heavy metals are everywhere. You know, uh, virtually everybody, if you give them a chelator, chelator is something that will grab a heavy metal out of wherever it's sitting in your body and push it into your urine or into your stool. So I've done thousands of these. And if you give virtually anyone living on planet earth a chelator and then collect their urine for six hours, you will find that their lead levels are 16, 20, 50 times higher than they should be. And often cadmium and arsenic and sometimes mercury that they're there. So we all have them. Um, we do detox heavy metals in people, but never early like until their gut is working and until their um, uh, deficiencies are handled and until their hormones are at a normal level, I think you can get people into trouble by trying to chelate them because their liver's overloaded, they're missing important um, detox systems, amino acids, and they can, you can make them sicker before you make them better. I have a, I have a great case of this. this. This woman was a top realtor in, in Pinellas County, which is where I live. Uh, she was very sharp and she was very successful. And she went to a doctor who diagnosed her with mercury toxicity and lead toxicity. Now he didn't clean up her gut or handle her hormones or handle her nutritional deficiencies. He put her on a chelator. And what happened was is that she had a bad gut and she had nutritional deficiencies. And when we put that chelator, we gave her an intravenous chelator and it went around her body and it grabbed mercury and arsenic and lead and mercury. And it put it out into her body. But when it went to her liver so that her liver could pull it out of the system, the liver was overloaded and it couldn't pull it out, which meant that that stuff was now going to circulate around. And in that woman, it ended up in her brain. And she went from this highly successful professional woman to basically a bag lady. She started carrying around the paper bags from the grocery store. She had a, a player in her pocket with religious music, which she would listen to. She looked totally disheveled. She'd gone from like high class business suits to these sort of grandma gowns. And her daughter brought her in to see me and she was a complete mess. She couldn't really function. And she, she didn't really even know where, where she was. It took about two years to like clean her up and then get the mercury and the lead out of her brain where then she could actually come back into present time and wake up and then resume her life as a functioning person. And I think sometimes that happens too often by people who are trying to do things to the body. The, the toxicity is there, but the staging of how you handle these patients is very important because if you're trying to do things that the body can't handle, you're going to make trouble for them and they'll get they'll get in trouble and they'll feel bad. So we're trying to do this as a gradual thing. So we're getting improvements as we go along and some bodies move faster than others. And we just have to sort of take it that way. Then we don't make, then we don't make trouble where it's a do no harm thing. Fascinating. I had somebody on the podcast that does hair mineral analysis testing. And I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but I did it and was super high in uranium. <laughs> I was like, oh God, <laughs> we have a nuclear bomb outside or what? <laughs> well, there's fallout. I mean, there's yeah. fallout. The, we saw a lot of uranium toxicity in, um, in GIs that were coming back from Iraq and from mm -hmm. Afghanistan because they have the, the warheads, the armor-piercing armor warheads have uranium tips on them. So that when it hits the tank, it heats up to like 3,000 degrees and it goes right through it. And there was uranium fallout from the around that stuff. And they got it. Some of them would get lung disease from it. So it's, it, it was a real thing. Fascinating. Fascinating. 
Okay. So, um, talk to me about peptide therapy. Do you use peptides? We talked a little bit about what classifies a, a amino acid, a protein peptides are shorter chains of, of amino acids. And, um, I've started to use them in my practice. Is there any peptides you love or do you use them? Uh, yeah, we use tons of them. Um, I've been taking them for three years. They're amazing. Um, you know, CJC epimoralin, it's a growth hormone stimulator. BPC-157 is like a healing, uh, reduce inflammation and heal. Thymosin alpha-1, thymosin beta-4, SS-31, MOTC. I mean, I got about a dozen of them that I use routinely. Most of the patients in my practice are on them. Um, there are miracles for reversing, along with everything else that we're doing, things like uh, restoring function in Parkinson's and in premature dementia. Um, in, in, in restoring eye function in people who have, um, you know, retinal problems. Um, and they're just, they're just incredible. So they're very safe. Um, and, um, and they're wonderful. So I, yeah, I you, use were them talking, you were talking about your hamstring injury and I've used BPC one five seven and, and some people with incredible, incredible results. So yeah. that was the, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Awesome. So I uh, was telling Dr. Minkoff earlier, I end all these podcasts with something called the semen analysis. And I found this study that actually was just published. Uh, I think it was today or yesterday uh, in 2022. And it's titled ketone body oxidation increases cardiac endothelial cell proliferation. And this was published in the journal of molecular medicine. Um, but it's a, it's an interesting study that looks at how ketone bodies affect our myocytes. And this is an area that I've definitely been following for a while now. And the first time that I was kind of turned on to it was, I believe it was Dr. Volek was doing a study on breast cancer patients who were stage four, had gone through traditional therapies um, and had just horrible recurrent metastatic disease. And when they did this study on ketogenic therapy in this patients, they did a PET scan, just like Dr. Minkoff was describing in a PET scan, the heart usually lights up really bright because it's, uh, it's using a lot of glucose. It's a very, you know, active, uh, metabolic organ. So they put these patients on the ketogenic diet and the, they had a, an incredible tumor response with ketogenic therapy, but when they brought them back for the follow-up PET scans, the heart wasn't lighting up anymore, uh, because the, the myocytes had become so adapted at using ketone bodies, using fatty acids as a fuel source. And so I started to kind of dive into this literature and there was a lot of stuff with, with heart failure when the heart isn't working well. Um, and I think this is, I think this is an important topic, especially in the world of COVID, because we know it's such a strange virus and it can, it can affect, um, uh, clotting and it can affect the cardiovascular and the, in the, in the neurologic system. And so anyway, the study was looking at how ketone bodies are such an important um, nutrient for these cardiomyocytes um, during starvation or consumption of carb restrictive diets is the only way to really, you know, produce these. But what they were looking at was they reported that the cardiac endothelial cells were able to actually oxidize ketone bodies and that this enhanced cell proliferation, migration and vessel sprouting. So in these hearts that were, were struggling, essentially ketone bodies were, uh, very easily utilized as an alternative fuel source. And, they, uh, you know, concluded in their discussion that ketone body metabolism is really crucial for, um, the, the survival of the cardiac myocytes and that the heart really is a major consumer of ketone bodies. You know, we've really thought that ketones are pathologic for so long. And Dr. Minkoff and I hopefully have kind of opened your eyes to <clears throat> using ketones as an alternative fuel source, but they also said that supplementation of ketones. So you can actually take ketones or give ketones to somebody exogenously and, um, there's some, I had another, uh, person on the podcast, Dr. Mary Newport. She does a lot of work in this area with MCT oil supplementation and exogenous ketone supplementation for Alzheimer's, but, uh, you can even infuse ketones directly and it will ameliorate the pathologic cardiac remodeling that happens, um, in this animal model of heart failure. And, uh, I just think this is, uh, this is really fascinating that, you know, in somebody with heart failure, ketogenic therapy could be something that could be really helpful for, for saving their heart. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm with you on that. I'm with you. I think that the, the, um, 
that that the heart as a as an organ which is on all the time that if you give it fuel it's too hot you give it too much glucose and insulin that you you they burn too high and that the heart has you know hundreds of times the amount of mitochondria in it than the irregular cells do and you know the other area of the body that's got extra mitochondria are like retinal tissue like where there's so much being used that these tissues are very the the optimum fuel for them is ketones and it's either ketones from what you're eating or from exogenous ketones um and that then that is the right thing and so when that organ is under stress the person had a heart attack or they have congestive heart failure or they have a viral myocarditis or a spike protein myocarditis that if you can that that this diet is naturally anti-inflammatory so you can reduce inflammation in those organs and then you can give it the optimum fuel for what they're adapted for because in the native state you know for the you know the first two million years of existence of humans the people weren't eating high carb or carb foods they were eating foods that were proteins and fats mostly they weren't eating grains and and so the evolution of the of these organs was on on diets that were fat and protein and so I th- that makes sense to me and i think that's a great that's a great idea amazing you'll never see that in a cardiac unit but it, but it's a great idea yeah i mean why don't why do you think that traditional uh, medicine is so averse to ketogenic therapy, really, honestly, in general. I mean, it's like even the American Diabetes Association is having a really hard time, you know, <laughs> making, they, they kind of gave like a very junior varsity statement the last year or two about low carb diets. But I mean, I have absolutely reversed. I can't even count how many people's diabetes with, with ketogenic therapy. hundred percent, like a hundred percent. They're owned by people who sell stuff that, you know, all their donations, all their support isn't coming from Volek and his friends. It's coming from, you know, look where the money goes. It's, 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 you know, they can't do it. You know, you look at the American Cancer Society. They're doing everything wrong for cancer, virtually. Not 100%, but a lot. Let's call it 89%. And, but they're owned. You know, these, these, these invested interests have control and they're not going to do things that don't make them money. And the things that make them money are having, you know, cancer patients that run up six, $800,000 bills and they can keep them going for four or five years. And that is a good customer. Whereas if you, we, we compared what our standard cancer treatment was for a stage three, stage four cancer patient versus what the, what the big boys do. Now, granted, the insurance companies won't cover what we do, right? And they will cover what they do, but we're about eight percent, like eight percent of the total cost of a total cancer program here versus at the big hospital. But the insurance companies are lined up with them, and they won't pay us, and they'll pay them. But you could, you could, somebody, uh, Goldman Sachs did a study on what if you actually came up with a cure for cancer. What would the downstream impact be on medicine? Mm-hmm. And it would bankrupt just about the whole economy because all the hospitals and all the pharmaceuticals and all the backed up stuff, surgeons and all this stuff that are employed as a spinoff from having a cancer epidemic is enormous. And if you could, it, so he said that will never happen because it, the impact would be too great. I mean, it's a little bit controversial, but if you look at what's happened, you know, with the current epidemic and where all the money's gone, yeah, you know, yeah. and a million people died and there's, there's, you know, smarter people than me saying, you know, 80% of those people should never have died. A little, little vitamin D and some quercetin and some vitamin C and maybe a little bit of this and a little bit of that, they wouldn't have never gotten to the hospital, but it's, it's, you can't, you, it's not, you know, there's no money in that. Yeah. It's a sick care model. It's a sick care model for sure. Yeah. 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 Uh, Well, Dr. Minkoff, thank you so much for your knowledge and for your expertise. Can you please tell people listening where they can find you or how they could work with you? Maybe they want to be your patient. Uh, Sure. So my clinic is called LifeWorks. It's L-I-F-E-W-O-R-K-S, LifeWorks Wellness Center. The website is lifeworkswellnesscenter.com. 
So there's hundreds of videos on there and there's a lot of testimonials on there. So if you're a patient that wants, and three quarters or so of everybody that sees us comes from out of town, uh, if they have a chronic illness, they'll spend a couple months. Uh, we have a very high success rate with people with uh, cancer and Lyme disease and chronic fatigue and neurological disease and autoimmune disease. So we see a lot of those, those people. And so we can help you. Um, so if that's the interest, go there. Um, I started a, 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 a product company. It's called bodyhealth.com. And uh, the perfect amino, the thing we talked about is on there. The book is on there. If you, if you want to buy the book on Amazon, you can. If you want to download it free, you can download it from that website. There's also a video recording of the book, which is really good because after each chapter, I have a discussion about the chapter and what goes on in there. And most people who have listened to it found it very interesting. So you can go there. There's also hundreds of videos on there. And so I do a newsletter every week, one from Body Health and one from LifeWorks. So if you want to subscribe, it's free. Um, we have tens of thousands of people that subscribe and mostly people like it. Most people, I get very few people that write me back and say they hate me. So I, I, I think it's, it's, it's designed to like help you with your health and give you ideas um, so that you can live longer and better. Incredible. Well, I'm going to just come down to Clearwater and hang out with you. <laughs> okay. Let me know. Uh, do you have a, do you have a race coming up? Are you training for another race? What's the plans? Yeah, I have a, a limited distance race in April. I have an Ironman in September. I have a half Ironman in July. Um, there's a bunch of sprints around here, which I'll jump into. So yeah, I'm active. I'm training. Um, and I'm just, this is my 40th season of racing Ironman triathlon. So I'm very excited about it. And um, my age group is thinning out. You know, if you're 30, <laughs> there's, you know, there's 500 guys in your age group and I show up on the starting line and there's maybe a half a dozen of us, but um, we all have a good time and we have fun and we're just uh, grateful to be alive, you know, and to be able to do it. Hey, every day you wake up is a good day. That's what I For always sure. say. For I sure. love it. Well, Dr. Minkoff, thank you. Thank you everybody for listening to the Fit and Fabulous podcast. We talked about some really, really good information today. So please share this episode with anybody you think that would find it helpful. And uh, we'll catch you guys on the next episode.